0: This true crime podcast often depicts crimes against children, women, and other people in graphic detail and nature. Please, listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to Grinding True Crimes with your host, Maddie Matt, Todd Fox, and Gabby Hey,
2: hey, hey, welcome to another episode of the Grinding True Crime Podcast with your host Maddie Matt, along with our narrator for today. And we are the host of the show, Todd Fox. And we are back live with another True Crime story. But before we get into it, we wanna let you guys know. And some of the details that we will be talking about in the story is, could be very uh, Serving for all the young ones that are old as well. So this discussion is definitely a thought. Uh, before we get into the story, once again, I want to let you guys know where you can find us. Find us on Facebook, Instagram. Just type in the uh, Finding Truth Crime and you'll find us. Also, all your podcast streams, such as Spotify, uh, iTunes, Pandora all those things, keep behind us, this type in Grinding True Crime, and you can listen to some of our past recordings that we've done in the past. Well, with that all being said, it is time for Gabby Gab to give us her story, and today she's going to be talking about Ted Bundy, and this is going to be part one, because from what she told me, she's got multiple parts to take care of, so let's give her our undivided attention, Gabby Gab.
1: Alrighty, guys. Ted Bundy is the case. Well, in Matt's case, he didn't know, but I have no clue. Almost everybody that I know knows about Ted Bundy. He was definitely broadcasted on the news a lot. So Ted Bundy, his—I don't know how I should start this. He's known to be a serial killer. I'll just say that much. Okay. And this is who we're gonna get into. He has a really long story. So listen to all our coming episodes. Um, he was born in July 1978, so we're going to get into his history first. He was born Theodore Robert Cornwell, or Cowell, Cowell, sorry, on November 24, 1946, in Burlington, Vermont, U.S. Okay. If you notice, I gave you two different dates of two different years. Yeah, you did. In 1978, that's when Bundy was born. And that's how he's known to be the serial killer.
2: Mm. Uh, Ah, so he has two personalities.
1: The actual man himself was born in 1946.
0: Got it. Okay.
1: So his spouse, which I didn't know before. I don't know if you knew, Todd. I didn't know he was married.
0: Yeah, I did. I did know he was married. Yeah.
1: Wow, I was shocked when I read it. Her name is Carol Ann Boone. I had no idea. I thought he just had a bunch of girlfriends. Mm. He actually had one child.
0: Really? Yeah, that I didn't know. There, because I just know bits and pieces of Ted Bundy. Because, like you said, a lot. Of, you know, it's very well known. It's been done on Netflix and things like that, and the high profile of the case. But I never delve into. Like I only know thirty percent of the story. Matt's way more clueless than I am. So this is gonna be new. Like I
2: said, I, when y'all when y'all said Ted Bundy, I'm thinking of married with children. I'm telling. You. <laughs> <laughs> I Have no clue. <laughs>
0: Yeah, this is one serial killer I didn't follow, like out of the big ones in California. I didn't follow this one. Okay.
2: I sort
1: of did, not completely. A lot of the things that I read on his story, I did not know about. Mm-hmm. But I definitely did not know about him being married. He apparently got married in 1980, and six years later, in 1986, he got divorced. But he did have one child, mm. which was shocking to me. Mm. His parents were Jack Worthington, alleged father. Eleanor Louise Cowell, mother, and Johnny Culpepper Bundy adopted his crimes and stuff, but I'm not gonna get into that yet because I wanna leave people in suspense and you guys that, well, whatever it is, you guys don't know about him. Mm -hmm. So I'm just gonna go into his life, okay?
2: okay?
1: Okay. So his childhood, he was born, like I told you, in 1946 to Eleanor Louise Cowell. Um. He was born at the Elizabeth Lund home for unwed mothers Mm. in Burlington, Vermont. His father's identity was never confirmed. His birth certificate said that they assigned paternity to a salesman and Air Force veteran named Lloyd Marshall. Mm. Though, after accounts, in other accounts, um, his father is listed as unknown. Mm. Louise claimed she had been seduced by an old money war veteran named Jack Worthington. And the King County Sheriff's Office had him listed as the father in their files. Some family members expressed that it was suspicious. Maybe Bundy had been fathered by Louise's own violent, abusive father, Samuel mm-hmm. Cowell. But there was never evidence about that. So family thought her own dad was the dad of her son.
0: Wow. Now, if that's the case, that would make sense years later with everything. Right.
1: That's, I don't know. So for the first three years of his life, he lived in Philadelphia with his maternal grandparents, Samuel and Eleanor Cowell. Mm-hmm. They raised him as their son in order to avoid stigma, you know, because the mom was not married and she had a baby. hmm Ted, um, his family, friends, and Ted were told that the grandparents were his parents and that the mother was... So, in his first years, he grew up thinking that's his sibling, not his mom. Hmm. Eventually, he discovered the truth. He told a girlfriend that a cousin had shown him a copy of his birth certificate after calling him a bastard. But later, when he was interviewed, he told bi- biographer Stephen McHowd and Hugh Ainsworth, these names, <laughs> that he found the certificate himself. So, Biographer and true crime writer Ann Rule, who knew Bundy personally, she believed that he didn't find out until 1969 when he located his original birth record in Vermont. He expressed a lifelong, lifelong resentment toward his mother for never telling him who the real father was and for leaving him to discover the truth on his own. So he was resentful toward his mother for that.
2: I probably would too. I mean, you know, to find out who my real dad is. You know, especially growing up, probably he was teased like, "Oh, you don't have a dad," and so like that. You know, I, I would probably feel that. But...
1: I think I would too. I, I don't understand when parents don't tell their kids the truth. Like, it's going to be hurtful one way or another. Mm-hmm. But anyway, although the views on his grandparents were bad, um, Bundy spoke of them warmly. He told the interviewer that he identified with respected and clung to his grandfather in 1987 though he and other family members told attorneys that that his dad his legally his grandfather but to him his dad was a tyrannical bully and a bigot who hated blacks italians catholics and jews
2: well he pretty much hated anybody
1: yeah he beat his wife and the family dog and he would swung neighborhood cats by their tails oh dude on one occasion, he threw Luis's younger sister, Julia, down the flight of stairs for oversleeping.
2: Oh, whoa.
1: He sometimes spoke aloud to unseen presences, and at least once he flew into a violent rage when the question of Bundy's paternity came out.
2: So, this was Bundy's biological father?
1: No, this is his grandparents. His this grandparents. His
2: grandfather. Oh, his grandfather, okay.
1: The one family believed it's actually his dad. Yeah. But it's not confirmed, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, if he's acting like that, Maybe. Maybe. Yeah,
1: that's what I was thinking when I read all this. I wouldn't be surprised if he was that violent. Mm-hmm. But Bundy didn't think he was, so I don't understand. Where was he when all this was going on?
2: Well, he ain't Bundy yet, right?
1: Well, no, but that's how we know him, Ted Bundy. Got it. Bundy described his grandmother as a timid and obedient woman who per- periodically underwent electroconvulsive therapy for her depression. Wow and feared to leave the house toward the end of her life. Bundy exhibited disturbing behavior at an early age. Julia recalls awakening from a nap to find herself surrounded by knives from the kitchen and Bundy standing by the bed smiling. What? Yes. Well,
2: There we have it. Here's the
1: start. So he was a little creepy. So now he's a here in high school, 1965. In 1950, Louise changed her surname from Cowell to Nelson. And at the urging of the family members, she left Philadelphia with her son to live with cousins, Ellen and Jane Scott in Tacoma, Washington. So this is when he finally, she took, I, how do I say it, like her responsibility as a parent and took um, her son with her. In 1951, Luis met Johnny Culpepper Bundy, a hospital cook at an adult singles night in Tacoma's First Methodist Church. They got married that year, and Johnny Bundy formally adopted Ted. So this is how he got his last name, Bundy.
2: Uh, I thought he had split personalities. So he was
1: formally adopted by the, the husband of his mom now. They conceived four children of their own. And although Johnny tried to include his adoptive son in camping trips and other family activities, Ted remained distant. So Ted didn't really become close to his adopted father now. Got it. He later complained to his girlfriend that Johnny wasn't his real father. He wasn't very bright and he didn't make much money.
2: Mm.
1: So he criticized his stepdad, well, his adopted dad. Bunny's recollections of Tacoma are different. He described how he roamed the neighborhood picking through trash barrels in search of pictures of naked women he explained how he perused detective magazines crime novels and true crime documentaries for stories that involve sexual violence particularly when the stories were illustrated with pictures of dead or main bodies in a letter to the interviewer the one that knows him rule he said that never ever read fact detective magazine magazines and shuddered at the thought that anyone would. He described how he would consume large quantities of alcohol and canvass the community late at night to find unraped widow, windows,
2: unraped, sorry. <laughs> That's unraped. unraped windows? <laughs> I didn't know they got raped.
0: <laughs> He's going to be like, let me rape those windows since they're on. <laughs> <laughs> it,
2: keep, it won't sit still. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Jeez
1: very wrong
2: undraped <laughs> sorry
1: <laughs> undraped you. <Gotcha. laughs> windows where he could observe women undressing or whatever he could see
2: so he was like a peeping top
1: yeah he had become a peeping top okay
0: but this sounds familiar the evolution of a of a uh, of a murder he's, he's yes going, going through the stages mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: they are do the typical acts Bundy also varied accounts of his social life. He said he chose to be alone as an adolescent because he wasn't able to understand interpersonal relationships. He Mm -hmm. said he had a natural sense of how to develop friendships. His words were, I didn't know what made people want to be friends. I didn't know what underlay social interactions. Classmates from the high school he was in, uh, Woodrow Wilson High School, told the, the interviewer that Bundy was well known and well liked a medium-sized fish in a large pond. So he was known to others, he was known. They knew who he was and he was like. but in his view, he was a loner. He didn't understand that.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Downhill skiing was the only significant athletic avocation that Bundy had. He enthusiastically pursued the activity by using stolen equipment and forged lift tickets. That was pretty much the only normal thing he was into, skiing, although he was stealing things. During high school, he was arrested at least twice on suspicion of burglary and auto theft. When he reached 18, the details of the incidents were expunged from his record, which apparently is customary in Washington.
0: Wow. And most other places too, like if you commit juvenile crimes, it doesn't follow you into your adult life for whatever reason
1: yeah that's crazy huh
0: mm-hmm. even 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 uh sometimes murder can be expunged really yep get out
1: that is so stupid because that just gives stupid kids the freedom to do whatever they want knowing that once they turn 18 that's all going to disappear
2: yep, <laughs> yep. Well, we go to washington well i'm not 18. I'm <laughs> 18 <laughs> too late
1: so he did go to university after he graduated from high school, which is also another common thing from the serial killers we've done. What they all go to college; they're all educated.
2: Well, I mean, college—you're open to do whatever you want. You know, you don't have supervision pretty much.
1: I know, but it's just shocking that they're all educated men and do. Just
2: because you go things. to college doesn't mean you're
0: educated. Well, that it anyway. helps you get away with stuff. There you go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> After graduating high school in 1965, he attended the University of Puget Sound.
2: Puget, oh, I'm sorry.
1: UPS is the, <laughs> for one year before transferring to the University of Washington to study Chinese. Okay. In 1967, he became romantically involved. So I guess this was his first relationship, because remember, he didn't understand relationships
2: mm-hmm.
1: with a UW classmate who was identified. As Stephanie Brooks in early 1968 he dropped out of college and worked at a series of minimum wage jobs and he also volunteered at the Seattle office of Nelson Rockefeller's presidential campaign
2: okay
1: he became Arthur Fletcher's driver and bodyguard during Fletcher's campaign for lieutenant governor in Washington State
0: cool. okay
2: so so far he's having a sus- 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 successful life yeah okay
1: so this seemed like a good job, driver and bodyguard for somebody running for governor. I'll take it. In August, he attended the 1968 Republican National Convention in Miami as Rockefeller's delegate. Shortly after, Brooks ended the relationship and returned to her family in California, frustrated by what she described as Bundy's immaturity and lack of ambition. So the girlfriend dumped him. He was devastated by the rejection, so he traveled to Colorado and then farther east, visiting relatives in Arkansas and Philadelphia, and he enrolled for one semester at the Temple University. This is where, in early 1969, the um, interviewer, Rule, thinks that Bundy visited the office of the birth records. That's where he Mm. found out about his parentage. Hmm. Bundy was back in Washington by the fall of 1969 when he met Elizabeth Klofer. She was identified in Bundy's literature as Meg Anders, Beth Archer or Liz Kendall. So he had like three different names for her. Wow. A divorcee from Ogden, Utah, who worked as secretary at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Their stormy relationship would continue well past the initial incarceration in utah in 1976 okay so so far this relationship seems to go on for years all right in mid 1970 he focused and goal-oriented re-enrolled in uw again this time as a psychology major he became an honor student and was well regarded by his professors in 1971 he took a job in seattle suicide hotline crisis center where he met and worked alongside Ann Rule, which is the interviewer that knows him. She was a former Seattle police officer. Okay. Rule saw nothing disturbing in Bundy's personality at a time and described him as kind, solicitous, and empathetic. After graduating from UW in 1972, Bundy joined governor daniel j evans reelection campaign
2: okay so he he's so he's he's actually having a pretty good life right now
0: yeah, yeah right right now he's he's getting politically involved too like he's rising up the i know this part he, he gets very um high up in the political scene
2: wow so uh, now i'm interested to see what Flipped his mind. I mean, what made him become, I'm assuming, a serial killer.
1: Yeah. He, I mean, right here, going for a major in psychology, that's what I mean by he's really becoming educated.
2: Yeah. Now I see what you mean by that.
1: So after he graduated in 1972, as I mentioned, he joined Governor Daniel J. Evans' re-election campaign, posting as a college student. He shadowed Evans' opponent, Governor Albert Rossellini, and recorded his stump speeches for analysis by Evans' team. Evans appointed Bundy to the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Committee. After Evans was reelected, Bundy was hired as an assistant to Ross Davis, chairman of the Washington State Republican Party. Davis thought well of Bundy, and he described him as smart, aggressive, and a believer in the system that in 1973, despite the mediocre LSAT scores, Bundy was accepted into the Law School of UPS and the University of Utah because he had strong letters of recommendation from Evan, Evans Davis and several UW psychology professors.
2: Wow, so he really is educated. So, yeah, his smart. scores
1: weren't great, but he had all these people recommending him that were high ranked, so he, that's why he was accepted.
2: Mm.
1: So now he's going to law school. During the trip to California on the Republican Party, the summer of 1973, he rekindled his relationship with Brooks. So she got back with him. I guess he was smarter now. Mm. (laughs) And more (laughs) She marveled at his transformation into a serious, dedicated professional who was seemingly on the cusp of legal and political career. So he continued to date Clover as well. Neither girl knew about each other. So he's still in his relationship, long-term relationship with the other woman. And he got back with his ex-girlfriend Brooks.
2: Well, he
0: was a player player. <laughs> yeah, he was. Okay, buddy. In the fall of 1973,
1: he matriculated at UPS law school and continued courting Brooks. Then she flew to Seattle several times to stay with him. They discussed marriage at one point and he introduced her to Davis and his fiance. So he's been with Cloak for longer, but he is talking about marriage with Brooks and introducing her as his woman to, you know, the high-ranked yeah. people.
2: Wow. Hmm. In January
1: 1974, he abruptly broke off all contact. Her phone calls and letters went unreturned. Finally, a month later, she reached him over the phone and Brooks demanded to know why Bundy had un, un... How she described it, unilaterally? I don't know what that means. She ended, he ended their relationship without an explanation. I guess abruptly? Yeah, okay. I guess. So in a flat calm voice, he replied to her, Stephanie, I have no idea what you mean and hung up on her. She never heard from him again. Wow. Later on, he explains that he just wanted to prove himself that he could have married her. That's all he wanted. Brooks concluded in retrospect that he had deliberately planned the entire courtship and rejection as advanced as vengeance because she had broken up with him in 1968.
2: Wow.
1: So he did it out of spite. Jeez. By then Bundy started skipping classes at law school, and by April he had stopped attending completely. As young women began to disappear in the Pacific Northwest.
2: Oh. <laughs>
1: so this is where his flip starts.
2: Oh. Well, first of all, first of all, he only married her and got with her just to get back with her he because. Didn't even marry her. Well, well yeah right he didn't marry her but he got back with her just to be like yeah I can marry you but I don't want nothing to do with
1: you just to prove himself that he could have her if he wanted to like I can have her if I feel
2: like it
0: wow what a great guy
2: what a great Great. guy (laughs) (laughs) and his reply was so cold (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah. man. what you talking about (laughs) get off (laughs) that's
1: wrong
2: dang All right. Sorry about that.
1: All right. So I'm going to get into, if we have time, guys, into the first two series of murders. Okay. So I'll start with Washington, Oregon. It says there is no consensus of when or where he started killing women, okay? Okay. This is just what is known as the beginning. He told different stories to different people, and he didn't give specific of the early crimes, even as he confessed in graphic detail to dozens of the murders later on. He told Nelson, who was the interviewer then, that he attempted his first kidnapping in 1969. So that was only a year after Brooks had broken up with him.
2: Mm. So this was
1: before his entire career had started going, you know? Interesting. In Ocean City, New Jersey. But he did not kill anybody until sometime in 1971. So as you can see, he was already killing when all of his... the high of his life was going on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He told psychologist Art Norman that he killed two women in Atlantic City in 1969 while visiting family in philadelphia wow he hinted but refused to elaborate to homicide detective robert d keppel that he committed the murder in seattle in 1972 and another murder in 1973 that involved a hitchhiker near Tumwater. water rule who i talked about before the interviewer that knows him and keppel both thought that maybe he started killing as a teenager so they don't believe that during the time he said he started that it was true. They think since he was very young he started killing.
0: Interesting.
1: Circumstantial evidence suggested that he may have abducted and killed 8-year-old Anne Marie Burr of Tacoma when he was only 14 years old in 1961. Jeez. An allegation that he repeatedly denied. His earliest documented homicides were committed in 1974 when he was 27 years old. And by then, by his own admission, he had mastered the necessary skills to leave minimal incriminating forensic evidence at crime scenes. So he already knew not to leave his DNA and this is before DNA profiling. Wow. So see what I mean?
0: Educated. Oh, go ahead.
1: Oh, go ahead.
0: I was just gonna say, yeah, it kind of makes sense he would kill before because if he's admitting he mastered it by then, then he had practiced before. That's a good point
1: yeah
2: yeah that's a good point
1: definitely with them i believe that he started really early
2: unless he killed animals
1: you know most serial killers are creeps like that they practice animals before they hit humans yep shortly after midnight january 4th 1974 around the time where he ended the relationship with brooks he entered the basement of an apartment of 18 year old karen sparks Identified as Joni Lenz, Mary Adams, and Terry Caldwell by various sources. I don't understand all this where people are identified with so many names. <laughs> she yes, was a dancer name. and a student at UW where he was going. After bludgeoning Spark senseless with a metal rod from her bed frame, he sexually assaulted her with either the same rod or a metal speculum. Oh. Right causing extensive internal injuries. Yeah. She remained unconscious for ten days. But she survived. <sighs> yeah, that's shocking, right? Wow. She survived with permanent physical and mental disabilities.
0: Oh poor thing. Dang.
1: In the early morning hours of February 1st, Bundy broke into the basement room of Linda Ann Healy, another UW undergraduate. Um He beat her unconscious, dressed her in blue jeans, a white blouse and boots, and he carried her away. Okay. Yeah, that's odd. During the first half of 1974, female college students started disappearing at the rate about one per month. Dang. On March 12, Donna Gail Manson, a 19 year old student at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, 60 miles Southwest of Seattle, left her dormitory to attend jazz concert on the campus, but she never arrived. On April 17, Susanne Elaine Rancourt disappeared while on her way down to her dorm room after an evening advisor's meeting at the Central Washington State College. Two, Two female Central Washington students later came forward to report encounters, one on the night of Rancourt's disappearance and the other one three nights earlier with a man wearing an arm sling, asking for help carrying a load of books to his brown or tan Volkswagen Beetle. On May 6th, Roberta Kathleen Parks left her dormitory at Oregon State University in Corvallis to have coffee with friends at the Memorial Union, but she never arrived. So all these girls are college students who are heading somewhere to meet somebody. And that's how people know their disappearance because they never show up. Detectives from the King County and Seattle Police Departments were concerned, increasingly concerned. There was no physical evidence and the missing women had little in common, apart from being young, attractive white college students with long hair parted in the middle. On June 1st, Brenda Carol Ball, 22, disappeared after she left the Flame Tavern in Burien, near Seattle. She was last seen in the parking lot talking to a brown haired man with his arm in a sling, so Uh this is the same description of the man that the other ones had encounters with. In the early hours of June 11 a UW student Georgian Hawkins vanished while she was walking down a brightly lit alley between her boyfriend's dormitory residence and her sorority house. The next morning, three Seattle homicide detectives and criminalists combed the entire alleyway on their hands and knees, finding nothing. So absolutely no evidence of wow. anything.
0: And all they had was the description of the guy? Nothing on the car or anything? Wow.
1: Just the Volkswagen and the guy in a sling was the same. Jeez. After Hawkins' disappearance was publicized, witnesses came forward to report seeing a man that night who was in the alley behind the the dormitory. He was on crutches with a leg cast and was struggling to carry a briefcase. One woman recalled that he asked her to help him carry the case to his car, a light brown Volkswagen Beetle. Later on, Bundy told Keppel that he had lured Hawkins to his car before rendering her unconscious with a crowbar. He had earlier placed beside the vehicle. So... Right here, they're talking about crimes that he confessed to, okay?
2: Okay.
1: Then he handcuffed her and drove her to Issaquah, where he had strangled her before spending the entire night with her body. Prior to her murder, Hawkins had regained consciousness inside the car and began talking with Bundy, who recollected she had informed him that she had a Spanish test the following day, and she thought that he had taken her to help tutor her for the Spanish test at least with the effects of her getting blunted in the head you know poor thing adding it's not funny but it's odd the kinds of things people will say under those circumstances that's what bundy said yeah he admitted to revisiting hawkins corpse on three occasions and he returned to the uw alley the morning after her abduction and murder there in the midst of the major crime scene he located and gathered her earrings and one of her shoes where he had left them in the adjoining parking lot and departed unobserved. Wow. So here we have an issue with police, as usual. Police mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Because those things were left there. She went missing. And they went through the entire alley and found nothing. Not the, not the earrings that he knew where they were, or the shoe. He just went straight and found them and took them.
0: Yeah, he's like, oh, they left these here. Let me t- see. <laughs> this isn't my collection. Wow.
1: There's always somebody, huh? That's not doing their
2: job. Yep. And they said they got on their hands and knees. Yeah. Wow.
1: Yeah, they didn't see all those
0: things. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe that. They probably were like, man, it's cold out here. It's raining. Uh, <laughs> you don't see anything on, like, on the surface. Let's just go, Johnson.
2: Let's go, Johnson.
0: <laughs> I heard there's this new coffee place called Starbucks. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go play, pay for some overpriced coffee.
2: <laughs> and that's a Starbucks was made.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man.
1: Yeah, idiots. During this period, Bundy was working um, in Olympia as the assistant director of the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Commission. Oh, geez. Where he wrote a pamphlet, rape prevention. <laughs>
0: Wow! Yeah, yeah, basically, when OJ wrote his book about if I would have done it, you know, Ted Bundy's if like, t- Ted Bundy's like, you know what? If I was the rape a person, this is how I would do it. So, as was going to look for this.
1: Wow, man! The people you trust—that's I'm telling you—can't you trust anybody. This is the man they trusted to help women in these situations, and he was the one doing it.
0: I know the well. cops are probably like, "This guy's pretty smart." <laughs> <laughs>
1: Whoa. Later, he worked at the Department of Emergency Services, a state government agency involved in the search of missing women. Oh. <laughs> there, he met and dated Carol Ann Boone, the woman he married, a twice-divorced mother of two who six years later would play an important role in the final phase of his life. Wow. So this is where he met his wife. I'm going to leave you guys there. And I will okay. not go
0: any further. So Interesting leave you guys in suspense for what happens next. See, this setup for me is just—it's eerie with some of the other ones that we've talked about, like you've brought up, Gabby. And uh, it's just—it blows my mind now that, like, this is an educated man now, not like most of the serial killers we've covered. But this is an educated guy. Who already has a leg up for being educated on the police, but the police being that dumb between the seventies and eighties to <laughs> yeah. he, had, he had several legs. I mean, he was like Usain Bolt racing a white guy. He's gonna win by a mile. You know what I mean? Like it's gonna be take... so disrespectful to the police,
2: Todd. They just I'm, t- in the...
0: <laughs> I'm just saying it would take Usain Bolt, Ted Bundy, to trip on something for the cops to actually catch up to him. You know what I mean? Like <laughs>
2: Oh, man. It it seems like in every story where there's a serial killer, there's always an incident where police stupidity comes into play. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying they would have found who it was that murdered her at the time, but I'm just saying they left some evidence, and he just came into the crime scene just, you know, oh, here I go. Here's the
1: thing. They could have found who he was because... There was already the description of his car. Mm -hmm. He had her. He knew where she was. So if he had pieces of her clothes, which was probably the other shoe, let's say, Mm -hmm. and they were looking for whoever owned that car around there, they would have found him or at least questioned him, at least searched his car. If they had found the evidence where they were looking to begin with, then, oh, he has the other shoe. We have the other shoe. You know what I mean? Like there could have been connections, even though there was no DNA.
2: But yeah. what I'm saying is, how would have known?
1: Because plenty of girls had already described the same type of person that might have lured the ones who went missing.
0: Yeah, they didn't follow up on things, and then, and then Gabby was mentioning three different counties. You know, there's there's King County. Uh, I think you mentioned Issaquah, and then Washington University probably has its own police too none of those police agencies back then, again, the big problem was they never talked or shared information. So that could have played a part. And then like Gabby said, which is really dumb. They have a general description. If they just match it up to other cases, they could see it. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing too is with, I mean, this is blowing my mind already when she just got started, the fact that, you know, um, he's inserting himself into these cases by, being on the board of missing people, like like that, true. Yeah. You know, like like if someone shows, like say for instance, they always say never when you, when you want a um, a parent to um to uh, coach your your son or your 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 kids' softball or football team, you don't want the the guy coming up like, oh man, I brought orange slices and capri sun and all this other stuff. I'm ready to go for the season. No, you want the dad to go in there, the coach to be like oh do I really have to do this you know I could be watching (laughs) football this weekend you know what I mean like you don't want the eager guy that makes sense it it seemed like
2: he was eager to be a part of those uh, professions that
1: yeah he was obviously trying to get the spotlight off of him
2: Mm -hmm. because nobody's going to suspect oh okay this guy is a rape prevention person I don't think he would do it you know
0: but but if they just matched up the fact that hey the rape prevention guy kind of fits the description of the guy who's raping the women but but the
1: prevention guy knows how they should prevent it how does he know
2: how does he know if you see a guy with a sling do not go up to him well how do you know
0: (laughs) yeah it's like what's your background (laughs) and expertise like how did you figure this out like ask a question (laughs)
2: <laughs> yes I
1: would have wondered I would have been asking like well how do you know so much
0: what year was this this was the 60s they were
2: they weren't they weren't thinking about that 70. Oh 70 the they still were not thinking about that
1: yeah that's the you know, thing police wasn't so motivated back then it was so like they didn't really it, was a a real effort.
0: it was a job it was a
1: job it was just your status and your money
0: mm-hmm. I agree I agree because
2: well, the moral of this story is if you see somebody with a sling and they're asking you to help them get something in the car walk by
0: <laughs> yeah at least at that time period good grief man
2: sure even now if somebody comes to me excuse me can you help me help me I, I can't nope <laughs> <laughs> find a way find a way Johnson <laughs> yeah.
0: No, you would be suspicious right off the bat because you were like, wait a minute, you're asking a black guy to help you? I mean, there's something going on here. You would racially profile yourself.
2: What's your last name? Is this Dahmer? Nope, I can't help you. <laughs> wow. You. Uh, all right. Well, this is the first part of the here in Northeast of he is
1: you already see it yeah
2: so what this is so far two confirmed murders
1: um well yeah this is one he definitely confesses, confesses. to and gives details about Got it scroll.
2: but there are possibly multiple ones yeah
1: in the beginning they're mentioning all of the disappearances that they were attributing to him mm. but i will not tell you which ones he confessed to and which ones were clear that it was him until the end
2: well, then that you know what that means. Y'all got to stay tuned to find out the rest of the story. This was part one of Ted Bundy brought to us in part by Miss Gabby. And we are going to end it here. But before we end it, I want to let you guys know where you can listen to us and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Just type in the Grinding True Crime Podcast and you will find us there as well as uh, on your podcast streams, such as Spotify, iTunes, Pandora, et cetera. You can listen to our past stuff on, just type in the Grinding True Crime Podcast. So, with that all being said, this is your host, Maddie Matt, along with our narrator. Gabby. And the other host of the show. Todd Fox. And we are signing off and hoping you guys have a good rest of your day.
1: Toodles.
2: Later. All right, clear. Cool. (laughs) Why were you laughing at me in the beginning? Because I said our past stuff.